0: of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Keith Jesperson, also known as the Happy Face Killer. His daughter, Melissa, has made her rounds on the talk show circuit, but she seems like a genuinely nice and caring person, and she's also absolutely gorgeous. There are many videos on YouTube where you can see her and hear her talk about what it's like to be the daughter of a serial killer, and Dennis Rader's daughter is just now beginning to speak out as well, recently releasing a book, but we'll talk about him on a future podcast. So let's get right into it. Keith Jesperson was born on April 6th, 1955, making him an Aries in British Columbia, Canada. So a little bit of history about Canada in the 1950s it was a great place to be. In 1954, Marilyn Bell was the first person to swim across Lake Ontario. In 1956, then Canada's Secretary of State for External Affairs came up with the idea of the first United Nations peacekeeping force to help ease the tension during the Suez crisis and won a Nobel Peace Prize for it. In 1957, the Hospital Insurance and Diagnostic Services Act gave federal money to Canadian provinces who wanted to set up public universal health insurance programs. Also in 1957, and I know I'm going to butcher her last name, Ellen Fairclough Fairclaw, was the first woman appointed as a federal cabinet minister. In 1958, the Avro Aero Aircraft, designed entirely and built in Canada first flew it was at that time the fastest jet in the world it could fly up to 2,415 kilometers per hour or about 1,500 miles per hour six jets were built but production was halted in 1959 because Canadians thought that there was some resistance from American buyers and the project was ultimately killed resulting in 13,800 people losing their jobs. Interestingly though, some of the engineers on that project migrated to the U.S. and went on to help NASA's mission that put a man on the moon. After World War II ended, Canada's gross national product had more than doubled after Canada had a surplus which enabled them to give two billion dollars to the UK and Western Europe to help stabilize the nations and recover from war. Canada, just like the United States, began experiencing booms. Most people had been living with rationing, and now that the war was over, people had money to spend. This in turn created a higher demand for goods, which created more jobs, and Canada even experienced a similar baby boom. Canada began their own unemployment program to help workers who lost their jobs through no fault of their own. Canadian immigration laws became more liberal, allowing entry based on skill and education level to show their ability to join the workforce. During this time of peace, Canada began to build highways, subways, power generating stations, hydroelectric dams, pipelines, canals, and mines. Canada and the United States signed the Automotive Products Agreement, or Auto Pact, stating that North America as a whole could import-export vehicles without having to pay import taxes. Now, while the Cold War was still an ever-looming threat, Canada looked to find peaceful ways to use nuclear technology, which led to Canada building the Can-Do reactor. It was supposed to be a safe and efficient way to make energy, but its safety has since been questioned. Canada also worked with the United States to build three radar lines in the north to help provide an early warning of any possible Soviet missiles and were mostly financed by the U.S. In 1956, the European Common Market was established, which placed high tariffs on Canadian goods, which made exporting more difficult. Also during this year, the Canadian Labour Congress was created and it represented about 80% of all Canadian union members and worked to help workers keep higher wages and safer work conditions. So, as you can see, for the most part, Canada as a whole was doing quite well during the time of Keith's birth. Keith Jesperson's parents were Leslie or Les and Gladys Jesperson. Now you will hear that word or that name, Les a lot. Les was born in Saskatchewan on March 14, 1928. His childhood and younger years were spent learning how to be a blacksmith in his father's shop, which eventually served him well as he later bought the business. He learned machining and he joined the Canadian Merchant Navy, supplying the U.S. Air Force during World War II. Les married Gladys in 1948. They honeymooned by traveling down the California coastline. He later started a business called Cruising Coffee, selling coffee from trucks to businesses. He also started a boxing club, as well as a search and rescue squad. He spent a lot of time outdoors mountain climbing, and he took his children with him. He owned a machine shop and... Les was a violent alcoholic and abusive to his family. Keith's mother Gladys was described as a gentle and unassuming lady. She was a housewife and a mother who enjoyed cooking, making clothes, and taking care of her children. Keith was the middle child out of five total. Les was mean to his wife and children for sure, but he singled Keith out specifically. His father looked down on women, believing that a woman should know her place, which was most definitely below a man's. He used aggressive, sarcastic comments at his children and especially Keith, belittling them constantly. What little attention Keith got from his father was nearly always negative and mean. And violence and aggression was actually a recurring theme in Keith's lineage. His grandfather, Les's father, was also known to be a violent alcoholic who was a bit of a pyromaniac. His grandfather's brother, which would have been Keith's great-uncle, was also known to be a sexual sadist. When Keith was around five years old, he began to torture and kill animals. He bludgeoned a gopher in the head. He caught and nailed crows to a board and threw knives at them, He nailed cats, as well as small dogs, to a board and impaled them with needles or nails. He would tie two cats' tails together with wire, then hang the cats over a rope or clothesline, then watched as the cats fought and clawed each other until one was dead. He once picked up a cat, threw and smacked it against some pavement, then finished killing it by strangling it to death, all while his father watched. His father then went and bragged about it to his buddies. Les also thought it would be funny to shock Keith with electricity in a greenhouse. Now, Keith claims that his father used 220 volts, though Les said it was only 12 volts. Keith stated that his earliest childhood memory was of he and his siblings at a park. He climbed up to the top of a slide and rolled a rock down the slide, But the rock hit his little brother in the head, making it bleed and thus making the little boy cry. Sometime in Keith's youth, the family moved from Canada to Washington and into a trailer park. As Keith grew older, his body also continued to grow and grow and grow. The kids at school bullied him badly over his well above average height and build. The kids, as well as his own brothers, called him Igor. Between the physical and mental abuse Keith suffered at home, along with the bullying he endured at school, he became a loner. He was cripplingly shy and would often get into trouble for bad behavior. And when his father found out, he would beat Keith mercilessly in front of other people. So, in turn, when Keith was about 10 years old, he beat another boy nearly to death before he was stopped by his father. The boy had gotten Keith in trouble for things Keith had actually not done, and Keith said that he fully intended on killing that boy. His father, Les, for once, didn't actually beat Keith for this action, though. Keith once called a woman a bitch, and her teenage son, enraged as anyone would be, I'm sure, stormed up to Keith, kicking him repeatedly with these pointy-toed cowboy boots. When his father found out, he beat Keith so severely, so savagely, that he wouldn't stop until Keith could no longer scream. He also stated that a local dairy farmer forced Keith and some other kids to strip off their clothes, The man also stripped down and then asked the kids to touch his genitals, but Keith ran away. So as Keith grew close to his teenage years, his torturing animals turned into him pondering what it might be like to do that to humans. Les began charging him and his brothers rent to teach them about the value of money and Keith found out that he was being charged far more than his brothers were. At about 13 years old, Keith and another boy were swimming at a lake. The boy held Keith's head under the water for so long that he knew he was going to black out, but the boy did finally let him go. Later, at the public pool, Keith saw that same boy. He got into the water. He approached the boy and held his head underwater until a lifeguard forced him to let the boy go. Keith said he had every intention of killing that boy. Later, he used a BB gun to shoot a neighbor in the groin and another neighbor in the butt while he was bent over picking up raspberries. He shot an arrow with an exploding tip at the home of one of his teachers. Keith developed an abnormal fascination with fire, just as his grandfather had. One of Keith's classmates later stated that, quote, He could be bright when he wanted to, but then he would do something stupid. He'd be too kind or too mean, too generous or too stingy. You never saw the in-between. I always wondered if he was in control of his own brain, if he might have had brain damage. He sure acted like it. Unquote. During middle school, as his interest in girls began to grow, he would ask them to be his girlfriend, and he would be rejected every single time. He never attended a school dance of any kind. So at 14 years old, Keith claims that he lost his virginity due to rape. And while I would love to be able to share some additional information on this, I can't seem to find any. So I don't know if it were by the hands of a male or a female you know I don't know what the circumstances were but he said that it did happen to him so it's worth bringing up when Keith was 16 years old his dad shot and killed his Labrador retriever and lifelong companion Duke because he said he was dragging and didn't look good like he had gotten into some poison that was his father's excuse this of course absolutely devastated Keith In high school, Keith stood an intimidating six feet, seven and a half inches tall. He was still painfully awkward around girls. He did not excel at school, and he did not go to his prom. Keith did manage to graduate from high school in 1973. But he never entertained the notion of going to college because his father told him he would never succeed. So that's Keith's childhood in a nutshell. Let's break that down. So it seems that his father was a very driven, hard-working man with a lot of ambition and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. What isn't fine is that he was verbally and physically abusive and also that he singled Keith out from the rest of his children to focus a lot of his negative energy on it is also stated that Les was chauvinistic toward women, and Keith grew up seeing his father belittle women. So Keith began torturing animals at just five years old. There has been so much research that shows the correlation between consistent cruelty to animals during childhood and later behaviors such as violence, delinquency, and criminal behavior when they're older nearly all violent offenders have a history of animal abuse or torture now it goes without saying that children who abuse animals have seen or experienced abuse themselves if a person is caught severely abusing an animal the authorities and social service people automatically begin to look into the treatment of the other people around that person children can abuse animals for many different reasons but the ones that i think apply to keith are According to Psychology Today, identification with the child's abuser, meaning the abused child wants to regain some sense of power by victimizing a smaller and more vulnerable animal. Another reason is what they call rehearsal for interpersonal violence, meaning they are practicing on animals or pets before engaging in violent acts against other people. Now, at the age Keith began torturing and killing animals, he would be considered a, quote, cry for help abuser, meaning that the abuse itself is a symptom of a deeper psychological problem that will most likely turn into domestic violence in some form or fashion later. Violence toward animals is also one of the three indicators in the McDonald triad, though we have proven that that isn't actually a very reliable tool. But the triad says that most all violent criminals and especially serial killers will have displayed at least two out of the three following behaviors as children. Starting fires, bedwetting far beyond a normal age, and cruelty toward animals. There are many serial killers that didn't display any of those three behaviors, but I wanted to share it because most people have at least heard of that. We also know that Les got a kick out of catching Keith, kill a cat, and bragged about it to his friends. Keith took that as a positive response from his father that he felt didn't particularly care for him for a negative behavior, thus rewarding that negative behavior. We also see that by the time Keith was around 10 years old, the violence shifted from animals to children We have an example of him nearly beating another boy to death and his father stopping him but then there were no consequences, his father didn't beat him, thus rewarding that negative behavior again. But when Keith was kicked repeatedly by a boy with the pointy-toed boots, Les beat Keith until he could quote no longer scream because he had called that boy's mother a bitch. So it kind of appears that no matter what Keith did, good or bad, he was going to lose. When looking at his childhood, you begin to see that he was detaching himself and isolating, acting out, and rightfully so, based on the abuse he endured from his family and lack of positive social relationships outside of the home. And while Keith's childhood experiences are still not as intense as some we have discussed and will discuss in the future, it is enough to at least offer some reasons. So after high school, Keith met Rose at a hamburger drive through and they began dating. Rose described him as a, quote, very charming, considerate young man, unquote. Keith was helping his father run the Washington State Trailer Park. He had wanted to join the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, but a serious injury during his high school gym class ended that dream. He fell off of a rope 25 feet onto the hardwood floor below. Keith later said that he truly cared about Rose, but he was never actually in love with her. But regardless, they married on August 2nd, 1975. They lived in the trailer park and Keith worked on the property to earn their rent, but eventually the trailer park had to be sold, so Keith took jobs where he could. He was a backhoe operator, a welder, he was an equipment operator in Oregon. Then he finally became a truck driver. He and Rose also began to have children, three in total, one boy and two girls. He was hardworking and even when times were tough, he supported his wife and children and they did not do without. By 1983, Keith moved his family from Oregon back to Washington and continued to work as a truck driver. For a few years, life was good though his daughter melissa remembers her father whom she loved dearly having a dark side she tells a story about there being kittens in their cellar and how she had felt like she was their mommy cat she brought them up from the cellar outside where her father took them and hung them from the clothesline by their tails and tortured them melissa went running to get her mother for help and when they got back keith had already killed each kitten he said he had hung them and watched them attack and claw each other before he killed them. So after a while, Rose began receiving phone calls from other women to the house while Keith was out on the road. Rose said, quote, I asked, Who is this? And they'd say, His girlfriend. And I'd say, Well, this is his wife. And they'd hang up. Unquote. She confronted him and accused him of infidelity which he denied but in 1990 after 14 years of marriage while he was out on the road Rose packed her and the children's things and drove 200 miles away to Spokane Washington to stay with her parents Keith was absolutely devastated he cared for his wife but he adored his children so not long after Keith committed his first murder His first victim was Tanya Bennett. She was described as a sweet girl, but, and pardon me, not very bright. And she was known to frequent the bars. Keith saw her in one in Portland, Oregon. They began to chit chat, and she gave Keith a hug, and Keith invited her back to his house he was renting. She agreed, but once they got there, she refused to have sex with him. So... He proceeded to punch her in the face more than 20 times, completely smashing her skull. He ultimately beat her to death. He then went back to the bar, had a few more drinks to establish an alibi. He went back home and got her body. He then dumped her body off the side of a road and went about his job driving. She was found three days later. The authorities knew that she had been killed elsewhere based on the evidence at the scene, but outside of that, they really had no leads. There was one early victim that was actually able to escape him. It was at night, and young mother Dawn Slagle was sitting in a parking lot, having just had a fight with her husband. Keith approached her and began talking. Now, this is long story short. She agreed to go for a ride with him. They stopped in a secluded area where he slammed her face against the window, attempting to break her neck. Now, she had her four-month-old infant child with her, and the infant was on her lap. And she stated that the baby rolled off of her lap onto the floorboard under the brake pedal. And then Keith began trying to stomp the baby. But then, she said, just as quickly as he had shut off, he turned back on. He just stopped and he began driving again he told her quote don't ever get into a car with someone you don't know again it might be the last thing you ever do unquote and he let her go over two years later he killed again a woman he had picked up raped and strangled he dumped her body in California a month after that another victim was found Keith later said she was a prostitute who had approached him at a truck stop and knocked on his door while he was sleeping. He of course let her in, then raped her and strangled her, dumping her body along the road in California. Two months after that, a woman he had slept with before, as she was a prostitute, said that it was going to cost him more than it had before. He refused to pay the additional amount and he killed her. In 1993, Keith met a transient woman at a truck stop. He took her inside and bought her something to eat, and then she agreed to have sex with him in the bunk of his semi. He then strangled her and drove several miles down the highway before dumping her body on the side of the road. His next victim was a woman he met at a truck stop in Florida while she was hitchhiking. She said she was trying to get from Miami To Nevada, and he offered to give her a ride. Once he got her inside the semi, he raped her, strangled her, and dumped her body off the highway nearly six hours later as he was nearing the Florida state line. So he left her body in his semi for six hours. Now he would drive in to see his children when he could, taking them out to eat, buying them gifts, but again, his daughter Melissa remembers him talking pretty openly about his sex life. Which, of course, made the children very uncomfortable. The most disturbing of his murders was of a young woman he met who he offered to give a lift from Spokane, Washington to Indiana. Now let's put this into perspective, okay? Truck drivers are only allowed to drive so many hours in a day. I believe the current rules are that they can only drive 11 hours a day. They also have to take a mandatory 30 minute break after no more than eight hours of being considered on duty, whether they are driving or not. On duty just means that they're either driving, or they're doing a truck and trailer inspection, or they're sitting in line waiting to be unloaded. You get the idea. Now I know that the laws for truck drivers have changed in recent years and they're more strict, so the laws that Keith had to follow might not have been that strict. But you see that there are rules and laws regarding how long a truck driver can drive. So driving from Spokane to just the Indiana state line alone is nearly 2,000 miles and it takes over 30 hours if you drive with no stops to sleep, no eating, no taking a break, no potty breaks, nothing. Needless to say, it would take a few days to get over there. Also. With him being a truck driver, he was probably having to stop and load or unload his trailer because the cost of fuel alone would probably deter him from just driving her over there with no loads to get. Also, it was January, and they were driving through a blizzard. But I digress. This young woman was becoming impatient about how long it was taking to get to Indiana. He stopped the truck... He grabbed her, he raped her, he strangled her, he resuscitated her, and strangled her. He repeated this a few times until she finally died, and then he strapped her body to the undercarriage of his semi. She had used his credit card to call home, and he was afraid that there would be a paper trail. But he was able to deal with the evidence. The icy highway ground off most of her extremities her shoulders, jawbone, and her skull. When Keith was satisfied that any identifying features were gone, he dumped her corpse in a ditch. Long before this, actually not long after his first murder, he began communicating his crimes. At first, he wrote his confession on the wall of a bathroom in a truck stop, signing it with a smiley face. He also began writing letters to various media outlets as well as police departments telling them about his murders in detail. Each correspondence was signed with a smiley face thus dubbing him the happy face killer. Now if you want to you can actually google him and find a picture of him kneeling down in some sand having drawn a happy face in the sand in front of him which looks exactly like the ones drawn on the letters pretty bold, I think. So in 1995, he killed his final victim. This would be his actual girlfriend, Julie Winningham. Two months after he strapped his previous victim under his truck, he began to suspect that Julie was only with him for his money, though they had been dating off and on for years. He strangled her, and then he dumped her naked body on the side of the road in Washington. This would prove to be his final undoing. When her body was found, he became the prime suspect in her murder. He denied killing her, but then after two failed suicide attempts, he decided to turn himself in. He also wrote a letter to one of his brothers confessing to other murders, and that letter was used as evidence as well. In total, he confessed to killing over 160 women, In the five-year time span, he was actively murdering, but only eight have been confirmed. He was ultimately sentenced to four life sentences, and he is currently housed in a prison in Oregon. When asked why he chose the particular women he did as victims, he indicated that if they were willing participants to do what he wanted, they would live. But if they gave him any indication of not playing along they died. He mostly targeted women of, let's say, limited means, whom he saw as trashy or not of a certain societal level. So as far as his serial killer classification, as to how we would classify Keith Jesperson with regards to being a serial killer, I'd have to say he almost fits in two categories, power control and mission. Power and control serial killers get satisfaction from the domination and humiliation of their victim, and these people live by their own rules. But he also seems to fit the mission type, where he feels the need to kill off a certain type of people. In Keith's case, it was prostitutes and transients. As far as having a mental disorder, Keith Jesperson is believed to be a true sociopath, which can also be called antisocial personality disorder. Like Eileen Warnos in my previous podcast, they begin to show signs in childhood of lying, breaking laws, acting impulsively, and having a lack of any kind of conscience. They have shallow emotions, are nearly incapable of real love, which you remember Keith admitted that he was not in love with his wife, and they need a lot of stimulation and they're very manipulative. So my opinion is that Keith was most likely born more so than conditioned to kill, while his father was not an ideal disciplinarian. I have read a lot of articles with interviews with Les Jesperson where he completely denies ever abusing Keith and that he just used the punishments he was taught to use from his own father. Now of course, we know now that beating a child with a belt on the bearskin repeatedly is not right but the generations before us were taught differently other family members state that keith was singled out more than his siblings and it is apparent that no one bothered to intervene when he began displaying troubling behaviors at such a very young age he had an internal rage and it was completely ignored so what do you think You can leave me comments on my Instagram page at serial underscore killing on the YouTube page under the same name of the podcast. You can visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com or you can leave me comments on Patreon. Thank you so very much for listening. I truly appreciate each one of you as I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I appreciate that. Thanks, and have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.